и шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to SRB Podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just one guest today, Kathy Frierson, on her book, Silence with Salvation, Child Survivors of Stalin's Terror and World War II in the Soviet Union. Kathy Frierson is a professor of modern Russian history at the University of New Hampshire. Her books include Peasant Icons, Representations of Rural People in the Late 19th Century Russia, all Russia is Burning, A Cultural History of Fire and Arson in Late Imperial Russia, Children of the Gulag, and most recently, Silence with Salvation, Child Survivors of Stalin's Terror and World War II in the Soviet Union. Why don't we start by, by having you talk a, a bit about this pro- how you came to this project uh, of interviewing child survivors of Stalin's terror. This was a project that I wanted to do forever, and I consider it one of the the best illustrations of serendipity in the historian's career. Uh, Back in 1989, when uh, scholars were just very much at the beginning of having the opportunity to leave Moscow or Leningrad to go to provincial cities, um, I had a very odd experience. So this is a sort of the convergence of a bunch of unexpected experiences. I ran into a former student, uh, Nellie Halke. Uh, She had been my student at Harvard when I was a graduate student and she was doing her senior thesis. She was then a graduate student uh, at Stanford. So I ran into her at the Lennon Library. I said, what are you doing here? And she said, the most bizarre thing has just happened. I said, what? And she said, I was able to go to Smolensk. You know, I'm writing about Smolensk during collectivization. I just got to go to Smolensk. And I said, that's impossible. This was something like November of 1989. I said, that's impossible. No one gets to go to Smolensk. And she said, well, actually, there is a guy there who works at the Smolensk archive. And I called, I made a cold call, and he said that I could come. So she said, you should do it because you're doing the Engelgart volume, and you should go down and see the Engelgart files. I said, I'm going to do it. So I did. And when I went to Smolensk, through another series of wonderful stories that can happen only to the academic studying in Russia. The archivist um, <clears throat> was not going to let me stay in the hotel for truck drivers from Poland, so he invited me to stay in his apartment. And I went to, so I stayed at his apartment, and his wife is Maya Rudolfovna of the, uh, she's the, she's an interviewed subject in uh, this book, Salvation, Silence with Salvation, and she also is on the cover of Children of the Gulag. So uh, if you can take yourself back to 1989, when Glasnost is just uh, opening up, and we're beginning to see all of the uh, ex- re-explorations of Stalin, and Akhamatova's Requiem had just been published, and so forth. So these were all you know, openings uh, in the closed society. That first night, Maya Rodolfovna sat up and told me her whole life history as a child of the Gulag, and I felt as though I had fallen down a rabbit hole. I didn't know the vocabulary. I had never heard stories from this perspective. There were no histories of what had happened to the children of enemies of the people, and her whole description was just so fantastic of her uh, having the nanny who saved her, being in exile, all of these things I couldn't uh, fathom. 
So uh, from that moment in 1989, I wanted to do the anthology of oral history interviews with children of enemies of the people. That is in Silence Was Salvation. Um, <clears throat> I myself had a child, and I did not see how I could leave my child to go interview these children. So for from 1989 until 2005, I was broadcasting this idea as a research topic at conferences saying, someone needs to do this topic. I talked to people who were directing doctoral students saying, please have someone do this topic. And lo and behold, uh, in 2005, through another completely serendipitous uh, event, um, I had the opportunity to move into the community of children of the Gulag. And I decided that uh, I could then take it up. My son was old enough. I could leave him. I could go start doing the project. And uh, therein lies the story. So it's a very long history that began with an accidental meeting at the Lennon Library and an invitation by an archivist to spend a night in his apartment in Smolensk. That's, that is, that's a very good story for, for a researcher, that's for sure. Um, it, now, why, why is it important to record the childhood memories of children of so-called enemies of the people? What does it add to our kind of understanding of the terror and the memory of the terror? As an historian, I've become more and more interested in uh, history according to generation. So the generational aspect of change matters to me. And so, first of all, it's not just that it's a history of repression, but what became of the generation who were children during the repression. So uh, thinking in those generational terms, uh, I think that it's not only we learn more about the, uh, the repression, we learn about the private life of repression, we learn about the personal impact of uh, the youngest victims of Soviet repression. That's all, that's all important, but I think it's equally important because we then need to contemplate, well, what were the legacies for these children who also lived through World War II uh, and lived up to and through and passed into the post-Soviet era? Uh, how do, does that contribute to our understanding of contemporary Russian culture? Yeah, I want to ask about their their place of this memory within the kind of larger memory of the terror in today's Russia a little bit later. But let's get into some of the kind of responses you get. And, and first, starting with, you know, you interview 10 people and, and you already told the story about how you got in contact with your first one. How did you get in contact with your other respondents? I actually interviewed 35 people. So I had to choose uh, just these 10 uh, in order to... And, uh, the book was intended to be for classroom use, and something has happened between, I lost four editors in the process, I think. I went through four editors at Yale University Press from contract to publication. Uh, so it was supposed to be a paperback to be a, for course adoption. Uh, so I'm, you know, I don't know why it's a hardback at the high price that it is. Right. It's a frustrating uh, thing in general for academic it's a books. It's frustrating thing in general. My vision was that this would be uh, something of reasonable size that could be used for uh, courses at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level. So uh, to answer your question, I interviewed 35 people. So <clears throat> serendipity meant I was running, oh gosh, how to explain this? It's so typical. I won't give you all the details. 
I happened to meet by sheer accident um, a uh, Simeon Velinsky, someone who was my driver in Moscow for a State Department partnership that I ran, was once Simeon Samuilovich's driver. And they had a very, only once, only one time, uh, but they had a, a memorable experience together. I'll just leave it at that. So he once mentioned to me, I had said to the driver in the course of our conversations that I'd always wanted to do this particular history. And he said, well, you know, I know Valensky. And I said, no. He says, yeah. And he's just published that big volume uh, for Dieti um, Gulaga. He said, maybe you want to meet him. I'll take you over to meet him. So uh, that's how it happened. So <clears throat> that was uh, nine, that would have been in 2003, something like that, 2002, 2003. And I met Simeon Samuilovich, and as the editor of Vazvarashenia, uh, he is, of course, in the business of accumulating the personal memoirs of children of the Gulag. And uh, he has an organization in Moscow uh, up that has then, back then, still had large numbers of children of the Gulag, children of enemies of the people living in it. And so he introduced me to uh, one or two. And uh, depending upon the level of trust I could establish with those people, uh, they would then introduce, pass me along. Uh, but I, I didn't make cold calls. Uh, because I, I rarely made cold calls because there has to be a fundamental uh, level of trust uh, right. before you walk in the door. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with incredibly intimate and sensitive, you know, life stories that are incredible, as you point out in your introduction, too, that are incredibly traumatic. And of course, these people in telling their stories relive that trauma to a certain extent. So, um, Simeon, Samuilovich, uh, again, serendipity. Uh, I was able to include Tamara Nikolaevna um, in Staritsa simply because uh, as an activist, Simeon Samuilovich Vilinsky had established a rest home for children of the Gulag out near Staritsa. And uh, through taking people from Moscow out there, he had come to know the local community. And through getting to know the local community, he came to know uh, those members of the community who were member who had uh, lost their parents to repression. So that's how I was able to add studies. Uh, <clears throat> I also contacted uh, Memorial uh, to find, I identified communities where I wanted to do interviews. Um, Volga became a major place because that's where I ran the State Department Partnership Grant from 1999 to 2004. So I knew the city quite well, and I also knew that it was an important depot city uh, in dekulakization and had major been, had been a major transit zone for people uh, going north and east in deportation or in prison convoys. So uh, I used my established connections with people in Vologda to contact the organization there, which is uh, similar to but not identical to Memorial. Um, and then, uh, so it just coincidentally, I was able to use connections that either were 
serendipitous or had issued from my previous scholarly uh, or State Department travels. Now, already in, in, in the foundational document, or at least one of the foundational documents of the Great Terror, uh, NKVD Operation Order 00447, which lays out the, the quotas and the procedures for dealing with arrests and enemies of the people and their trial and execution. Um, in Already there, they're stating how to handle um, family members of, of those who are arrested. What did this order and the other following orders on how to deal with um, wives of repressed, uh, what did they say about what to do with these people and um, what was their impact? From the very beginning, as you say, from 00447, <clears throat> that from July 30th, 1937, they already were stating that families uh, who had members, of the, which they said, quote, which are capable of uh, anti-Soviet actions, uh, that these persons should be punished, uh, that they should um, be subjected to exile, uh, that they should be um, disenfranchised, that they should become lachensi, um, <clears throat> they're subject, subject to expulsion to other regions, and so forth. So uh, the, the notion of uh, inherited or associated guilt was assigned to the families as well as early as uh, 1937. Then by the time we get to uh, 0486 uh, in August, so just two weeks later, they're down into the, the details of what do you do with the wives, what do you do with the children, uh, according to their age, up to those who are breastfeeding still, uh, those who are between the ages of nursing to uh, 14 and then from 14 older. So <clears throat> did, would you like me to talk about what some of the orders were? Um, not just maybe how they're impacted. I mean, how did they affect and how did they, were they implemented in kind of in exiling uh, wives and, and, and what happened to the children? Like what happens to you when you are a child of an enemy of the people? When you're a child of the enemy of the people, some of the things that are most likely to happen are that one fine night or early in the morning, a team of uh, men will come into your apartment and will uh, search your apartment and take the remaining parent away. Uh, the searches of the apartment were quite traumatic. Often uh, at the point that they take the parent away, the officers do absolutely nothing with the children. They just leave and the children are left in the apartment uh, by themselves. Or uh, sometimes the mothers anticipating that this may happen uh, would have made arrangements. Uh, I have a, one of my interviewees is in the volume by uh, Sean Geith and uh, Kathy Jollocks of Voices from the Gulag. Um, his parents rolled him up in a mattress top and took him down the hall and put him in an apartment of a neighbor so that he wouldn't be taken away. He ultimately was taken away. So the question is, <clears throat> your parents are gone and what will your fate be? According to the order, you're supposed to be removed from your family and you're supposed to be removed from your siblings. Uh, you're not to be put in uh, institutions, uh, orphanages, children's homes, where your siblings are because they want your identity to be shattered and your roots to be um, 
you know, torn away at the root, uh, as Lynn Viola says. Um, <clears throat> but very rapidly, uh, it became clear that they didn't have enough spaces in the children's homes to place all these children. There was a loophole in 00486, which said that parents, relatives, not parents, but grandparents or relatives who were willing to take in these children could take them in. Um, not many did, which is shocking, um, but that tells us the fear of uh, the stigma that was attached to it. If you were one of the lucky ones, uh, you were able to live with an aunt or a grandmother. Um, <clears throat> some, in some cases, so Ina Geister's case, since everyone in the family, having come from um, Jewish communities and risen up through the Soviet system, um, all of the men were arrested. Most of the women were arrested. So she lived in a household with all of her first cousins in her grandmother's house uh, because all of them had lost all their families. And this you know, grandmother took in 13 children. So um, that was the happy outcome. Uh, the most unhappy outcome would be if you were sent off, as my one of my respondents was, uh, to a children's home uh, at the age, an NKVD orphanage um, at the age of five and uh, separated entirely from one's background. Uh, and he did survive, which was happy. Um, he was able to survive, but uh, that sense of isolating the individual from the child from his or her previous associations and making them completely under the instructional system of the Soviet state was the ideal. In some of your, in one of your interviews in particular, um, some of these people were able to stay in contact with their parents. How, how did that work out? Yes, this was a big surprise to me, and I don't know why it shouldn't have been a surprise to me, but somehow it didn't register until the the children were telling me about their trips to see their parents. So <clears throat> up to 1941, um, that is before the outbreak of World War II in the Soviet Union, children had the right to correspond with their parents and their parents could correspond to them from the camps if they hadn't been executed. Um, and uh, the regimes varied uh, according to how many letters a month or a week that they might be able to send. Um, but the children also uh, took parcels to um, the, the designated post offices in the region. Uh, so for example, in Moscow, one had to leave Moscow to send off the parcels, but they would send off parcels. So they main, co maintained contact with their, uh, typically their mothers uh, during their eight years of exile by sending them parcels to the camps. Um, and uh, equally, if one could save up enough money to buy a train ticket and organize such a trip, and if one's mother or father was uh, a good enough prisoner to receive the privilege, then a child could go visit his or her uh, mother. Uh, typically mother, because usually the fathers were executed. I found this fascinating because it was uh, a way of understanding how much communication there was between the culture of the gulag and the, um, the world, excuse me, the world beyond. 
uh, it, not only was there were there letters, I, I found it fascinating as I talked to these people that they all had a mental geography of the Gulag that was better than uh, Memorial's was when Memorial first got started because they had a mental geography of all of the addresses to which they had been sending letters to their uh, parents, mothers typically, as their mothers were moved around from camp to camp, region to region. Which was quite frequent. I mean, some of one of the year in the interviews, they were describing their mother being moved. It seemed like you know into four or five different different into camps. Yeah. And so the children's mental world uh, included the whole network of the Gulag. And of course, we all know we we've all praised uh, the beauty of ge- the instruction in geography in the Soviet educational system. But this was an alternative geography that I had not yet envisioned, but I realized that all of them inhabited. And that was that was quite fascinating. Uh, then after the war, so just to say in 1941, of course, the uh, all correspondence rights were eliminated for people living in NKVD or in the Gulag installation. So at that point, they went into a black hole of no correspondence. Parent, you know, the children didn't know what had become of their parents during the war, and the parents didn't know what was becoming of their children during the war. Was there, an, in terms of after their parents were released or even after destalinization, was there uh, great efforts made to reunite? Was it difficult to reunite with one's parents? Two things I wanted to say. Um, uh, and uh, after the war, of course, many of them fell that they would arrive, that their terms would end if they were of the, of the great terror generation. They're going to end in 46, 40, 45 or 46 is when their eight-year terms are going to conclude. And um, <clears throat> some of them were brought back and lived outside the 100-kilometer uh, limit that they couldn't uh, live close to a major capital. Uh, so uh, sometimes there were... for. There were efforts to reunite when the children had lived with relatives. If a child did not live with a relative and had gone into the system of children's homes, had had their documents removed, had their names changed, and had been separated from their siblings, then the process of trying to find one's mother or to have one's mother find you was extraordinarily complicated. So uh, there was that factor. Um, <clears throat> for those who came back and then were rearrested, the mothers who were rearrested in 1949 or who were who fell into the eternal exile provisions after the war, um, the children, as they grew up, would go visit them, most typically in Karaganda, Kazakhstan. Um, to, uh, and so then they knew this whole world of uh, the Gulag exile community. It was, it was their summer camp, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they went on summer vacation. They went down to Karaganda. Um, and but I'm you know, I've either uh met or talked to many people who made these trips and we idealize them, especially those of us who are the education uh, of the age of parents and if we're raising young children or we're raising teenagers, we would hope that the children would want to be with us and would be longing for us and so forth. But many of the children expressed impatience. Oh, I had to sit down and write a letter once a month to my mother. You know, um, uh, I made a trip out. I didn't want to do it. She begged me and begged me. She made me come out. It just irritated me. I wanted to stay home. I'd rather be in Moscow and be with my friends. Um, so uh, there were all sorts of obstacles. And of course, the children 
some of them uh, had paid such heavy costs in terms of stigma that uniting with a mother who now looked like she was 80 and had no teeth, uh, who on top of it was an obstacle to your advancement in education and your career, uh, seemed like a pretty heavy price to pay. And that made reunion uh, not always obvious or easy. And talk a little bit more about the stigma. Um, did it did it officially end with destalinization, and did it un- and if it did, did it unofficially continue in in many ways in these people's lives? It officially ended, but it certainly <clears throat> officially it officially ended. Uh, and for again, this is so lovely to come at this topic. Uh, I came to understand the significance of. Khrushchev's secret speech in ways that I had not understood them before. Uh, What I learned from these people was how much that speech meant to them because in the speech, uh, Khrushchev, uh, incorrectly, of course, but he says, Stalin invented the very concept of enemy of the people. So for these children, some of whom had been five, six, and seven when their parents had uh, been arrested, Uh, and then had lived in the Soviet institutional setting, it was an enormous relief to have the party itself acknowledge that there had been no guilt and their parents were not guilty. And uh, so that speech alone relieved them of the burden of guilt, uh, but it certainly did not relieve them of the stigma. So it, it continued to play out Uh, in all sorts of ways, even into the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, And, uh, for example, one of my um, respondents had children who, let's see, they're now in their 40s, so they would have been, I think they were 40s or 50s. So they were in the, it was in the late 70s, early 80s, the very end of the Soviet regime, Uh, who were children who were physicists, and uh, they were denied the opportunity to study in any of the physics departments that had military applications because their grandfather had been an enemy of the people who was rehabilitated officially, but it still didn't matter. It still played out. So there, there were unofficial ways of reminding the children of whom they were, and I'm sure that this is going to be a very nasty year for them, a very complicated uh, celebration of the 70th anniversary of the victory over the fascists because the rehabilitation of Stalin is attached to that is uh, rehabilitating uh, all of the systems of stigma. So very, very, very painful. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to ask you about that, but f- but f- especially the 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 issue of memory of Stalinism today and how these memories fit into that. But before that, um, how do these memories uh, reflect this kind of lasting trauma of the terror uh, in Russian society in Russia's memory? Just the terror, <clears throat> because I have to say that it's the terror plus the war. Plus the it's, war, sure. It's the compounding effect of being stigmatized orphans. Uh, in uh, enduring the deprivations of war, which were horrible for all Soviet children, but even worse for these vulnerable children. So hunger is the one that they most acutely remember uh, that causes them to weep to this day. 
uh, I would say that the memory of physical deprivation uh, lingers. Many of them have physical, had, so many of them have died now uh, because I was, they were in their late 70s and early 80s and mid 80s when I was interviewing them. So they're now dying. Uh, but many of them uh, during the war or uh, even, you know, during the famine of 46, 47, uh, again, stigmatized orphans with the least adult uh, assistance. Um, they developed all of the physical complaints of starvation. So they had boils, uh, they lost their teeth to scurvy, and as old people, they were living with them. Uh, some of them would pull up their pants and show me the scars uh, all over their legs of uh, the boils that had festered and festered, or that you know they, none of them had their teeth because all of them had lost their teeth to scurvy because they hadn't had any of that. Um, many of them contracted tuberculosis because, of course, tuberculosis was widespread, but their immune systems were so weakened by their starvation that they were lifelong uh, sort of uh, victims of tuberculosis. Uh, those were, some of them were never able to have children uh, because they had had, the women had had such sustained amenorrhea uh, that they were never able to have a proper reproductive tract again. Um, all sorts of sensitivities to exposure, physical exposure to the elements, and uh, needless to say, fear of unexpected arrivals in the night. And finally, about this, as as you mentioned, we have been seeing over the last couple of years uh, rehabilitation, kind of slow rehabilitation of, of Stalin. Um, you know, you even have some localities putting up statues. You certainly get more favorable uh, portrayals of Stalin in the Russian media. How, how do these childhood memories fit into the the memory of Stalinism today? Very complicated for them and for their descendants. Uh, one of the, you may not be aware that I, I published an article on problems of post-communism. So for if there are any graduate students who are listening to this blog, I will say that uh, I started off by telling Sean that I wanted from the very beginning to do what I've finally been able to produce. It is the anthology of 10 interviews for classroom adoption. But there was no way to get funding uh, to go just do that. It was a new concept, the oral history. It was early. So the way I was able to get funding from the National Council or anything else these days is it has to have a policy application, as you all know too well, so to get an IRAX and so forth to pay for the travel. So I incorporated surveys of uh, late year advanced high school students and college students on what they knew about Stalinism, <clears throat> what they knew about the terror, uh, what was their knowledge base, and how did this affect their understanding of law. Uh, so I published an article about this. I must have appeared in something like 2006 in Problems of Post-Communism. This is what I discovered. Contrary to the facile discussion of amnesia and intentional amnesia, I found that none of these, I mean, that these students had a very good understanding. They knew the numbers. They knew the symptoms, uh, the people, the, the impacts. They knew the legacies. Uh, and they tended to know them from personal channels. From there, and I also uh, surveyed their teachers just to get a sense of what the what was going on in the classroom and so forth. So it was not for lack of information or lack of knowledge. Um, <clears throat> they knew. So then the question was, well, then how does it shape 
their understanding of their contemporary situation or what to think of Stalin and what should the future of Russia be. And uh, I found that there was typically a disconnect uh, that, uh, yeah, they knew about that. And yes, it had caused great pain to their families. And yes, there had been real stigma. And yes, the numbers had been enormous. And yes, there had been great violence. Uh, but now they were moving into a rule of law state. So again, these surveys were done in 2002, 2004. Uh, so just as Putin was coming to power, uh, I don't know what they would, if I went back and interviewed these same folks or surveyed these same students, uh, if we would find that they have a different view of Stalin and Stalinism, but they very much at that point considered it something in the past. So this is this insistent assertion and rehabilitation of Stalin today. Uh, it's not the children of the gulag. I mean, they're enraged. To, so right. In short, I mean, I'm, I am in Skype contact with the surviving uh, members of the people who are interviewed in the book. And so I talk to them. They're still active. They're still fearless. They're still going to demonstrations. They're still uh, doing everything they possibly can to counter the rehabilitation of Stalin. And they are, you know, using their last life's blood to try to uh, stem this tide of rehabilitation of Stalin. But their grandchildren, not so much. That was Kathy Frierson, professor of modern Russian history at, at the University of New Hampshire and author of Silence with Salvation, Child Survivors of Stalin's Terror and World War II in the Soviet Union. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next week, bye. Моя Морозечка, моя ты куколка, моя Морозечка, моя ты душенька, моя Морозечка, а жить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой.